everybody. I'm so glad that uh, uh, you've joined us either here in person or online, and welcome to the Bridge Church. Um, when I was uh, 14 years old, and, and because of my style of preaching and transparency, most of you have heard my story, uh, but I want to look at it from a little bit different angle. When Jesus got a hold of my life and changed me when I was 14 years old, uh, I was on the side of a mountain in Colorado on this youth retreat that I had brought marijuana to, and it was getting high to right before he changed me. And I'm laying out underneath the stars by myself on the hill, on this hillside, uh, and uh, talking to God. And it was a very simple conversation. It was, if, if uh, this is going to get fixed, you need to fix this. I was broken. Um, I was messed up. And, uh, and as God would have it by the next morning, miraculously, the, the, stuff was in, the, the drugs that were in my jacket pocket were gone. Uh, my youth pastor never admitted to taking them, so I'm assuming this was a miracle or it fell out while I was running. But the real miracle happened right after that. I began to testify. I began to tell people. It didn't, it, uh, that morning, I went up to the guy that I most wanted to impress, a senior, I can see the picture on the side of this river, and he's getting water in his canteen. And I went up to him and told him I was going to start living for Jesus. And he said, well, I think I can smoke pot and still live for Jesus. I said, okay. I, mean, I didn't know what to say. But that night, within 24 hours of Jesus changing my life, I stood up in front of the youth group and told him I was going to be changed, that I was going to live for Jesus. And the testimony began. And then I went home and told my family, and there's a weird thing that happened. Maybe it isn't weird. Maybe it's normal. They were like, what? <laughs> and I remember specifically, there were lots of things that were problematic for me turning my life over to Jesus. But I remember my older brother saying to me and trying to convince me that I had stolen $20 and I had denied it. I'd stolen $20 when I was in eighth grade. And it bugged him. And I didn't come clean even then. The problem was is that the man that I was, the young man that I was, this boy growing up, the, the guy that Jeannie broke up with in high school because I didn't have character, when I was 13 and 14 years old and we just started the date, she broke up with me because of my lack of character. People were slow to buy it. It added difficulty. Teachers, how do I react to this guy now? Church, I mean, I had cheated on my pastor's instruction class. I mean, this is, you can't fail pastor's instruction class tests. What did you get for number three? Predestination? Okay. I mean, my church life was messed up. My home life was messed up. My school life was messed up. And Jesus took this mess and called him into his family. And then called me to be a witness of grace. And he didn't say, wait for four years till people see the difference. He said, go be a witness, just as you are. Today we're going to see in this passage that you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And the reason I titled the sermon this is because it goes right back to Acts 1.8. And if you were to see Acts 1.8 and re remember this, it is the 
call that Jesus gave, and it is the description of all of Acts of them following this command and God working this out by the power of the Holy Spirit. It said in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, we have seen Jerusalem, we've seen Judea, and we've seen Samaria, and by chapter 10, the ends of the earth comes in, and I don't think they knew how difficult this was going to be. I don't think they had any idea when Jesus gave the command. That means the Gentiles are going to be entering the church the same as Jews on equal footing before the cross, and you've got to figure out unity with that. So difficult is this moment in the church that we'll see, we, we spend 48 verses on it today, but it's more than that. They retell this story three times, and then they retell it again when Peter goes before the council later on in Acts, and they retell the story. Why are they telling the story and retelling the story? Because people are very reluctant to buy what happens right here. This is dangerous for the church. This is cataclysmic. It's a complete change of mind that Gentiles are going to now be on equal footing with the Jews in the people of God. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth, and we'll see that Jesus must be proclaimed to all people, Jesus must be proclaimed to each household, and Jesus must be received by each person. I'm going to read the section of Scripture with each section, so I'm not going to read all 48 verses on the front. But as we look at Jesus must be proclaimed to all people, I'm going to read these 23 verses. And the other thing I want you to know about this sermon is that if I were to drill down, which would be fun, we'd be here a long time. So there's a, you know, if you look at my floor, in essence, in my uh, study, you'd see a bunch of clippings, things that got snipped from the sermon so that we could keep it concise. So we're going to skim across parts of this, wishing I could drill down, but knowing that Part of what I want you to see here is that we are still called to be witnesses to our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus must be proclaimed to all people. Read with me the first 23 verses of Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the household about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And 
there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by the holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Jesus must be proclaimed to all people. This scene isn't so perplexing for us, maybe. It isn't so surprising that a Jewish man might be sent to a Gentile home to preach the gospel. But Peter's first response speaks to the reluctance of this cataclysmic change to the people of God. That no longer are the people of God's holiness tied to being set apart in the same ways that they were in the Old Testament. There is a new covenant and a change that has come about for the people of God that has resulted in that Jesus must be proclaimed to all people. Now we'll see there are hints of it in the Old Testament and we'll skip across those. But if you drill down at all, you would see that God has always been concerned about the sojourner and the people from other nations and it has been his heart that the Jews would move that direction. But the church, their job is to accept all. To not be partial to people based on their background, their nationality, their race, their perspectives even, their political positions. Jesus must be proclaimed to all people. It, the scene opens in Caesarea and, uh, with a centurion named Cornelius. Now, a centurion was one who had the responsibility of a hundred uh, soldiers. That's his job, is to oversee a hundred soldiers. And he would be part of a cohort and part of a legion. There would be uh, six cohorts, and those six cohorts would make a legion. It was a well-paid, high position. In Rome, soldiers were thought of very highly. They were looked up to. They were given lands. They were given property. They were given prominence. And they spoke with authority wherever they were sent. They were spoke with the authority of Caesar. And he wasn't just a, a soldier. He was a leader of 100 soldiers. This is a prominent man. In Caesarea, we could talk a lot about the port city that is Caesarea that was named after Caesar. 
It was also prominent in its time, and you can still see its prominence today with some of the buildings remaining, the amphitheater remaining to this day. But significantly, within 10 to 12 years after this moment, a persecution is going to break out and the, the tension between Romans and Christians is going to become very strong in the city. And it's a Roman centurion who is going to be brought to Christ. In verse 2 it says, He's a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. What does that mean? Why is Luke presenting that? We're going to see him present in part as this uh, one who looks favorably on the Jewish faith. Uh, Because of the descriptions, it would be most likely that he was not circumcised, that he was not a full follower of Judaism, but he is one who is sympathetic to the Jewish perspective and prone to worship Yahweh. He still would have been considered profane, by Jews. He would never have been welcome into the temple being a Gentile. But he is not a complete follower of Judaism. He is not turned as, but he is one who is following some of the ways of Judaism and serving and praying to that God. About the ninth hour, three in the afternoon of the day, their, their hours were presented from the time that you wake up. The sixth hour is noon, the ninth hour is three in the afternoon. It was clearly, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. It could be presumed that this is their afternoon prayers and that he is following afternoon prayers. That when he talks about being pray, praying continuously, that he continues to fall to his knees and pray in the afternoon and pray in the morning at those appointed times. And at the appointed time of prayer, he turns to God and prays to him, and he sees a vision. And he stared at him. Um, the ninth hour, he saw a vision, and the angel came. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So some 37 miles south, he sends three people because of this vision. He sees an angel. He's afraid. Now, this is a guy who is not supposed to be afraid. But looking at the angel, it's not the picture of angels that we tend to see in cartoons or in the movies. In most presentations of angels in the, in the scriptures, it is fear that is the first response. Angels are powerful. Angels are of God. Angels are not like us, although they can look like men and women at times. So he has this dream and this vision, and God is clearly calling him and choosing him in part because of his piety. Now maybe it would be better for the story if we saw he would be more like Saul, where you know, clearly not a Christian and not a friend of God, and there's this huge conversion, and 
I think that, Paul prob- that Cornelius is probably picked because it's a big enough hurdle just to change what they're changing with Gentiles. It isn't that Cornelius is more savable than someone else, than another Gentile. It's simply for this story that will be told again and again and will change the culture of the people of God to come as you are, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you come from. He picks the most favorable of Gentiles, maybe. One that's more palatable to the Jewish people, but it's going to get ugly as it goes. So much so when you read in Ephesians 2 about the barrier, the dividing wall in the church between the Gentiles and the Jews, he declares that God is the one who breaks down that wall and it's by grace that we're saved through faith. The church is a miracle. Unity in the church is a miracle. It's not a gathering of people that we like. It's a gathering of people that God has saved. And by the power of God, he unifies us. And there isn't ethnicity, race, or that, none, of that, none of that can divide us when we come under Christ. This is a, an amazing moment. And now send to Joppa, which is now called Jaffa, that city remains, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is whose house is by the sea, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and have related everything to them. He sent them to Joppa. So he sent them this... The story begins at three in the afternoon. Let's say he's five o'clock at evening that he gets these folks together and sends them. And they travel 37 miles. By noon the next day, they're walking, not on flat roads like ours. By noon the next day, they're showing up in Joppa. That speaks to a couple of things. 37-mile walk through the night speaks to urgency, obedience. It speaks to how hungry they were to hear what God had to say. And I wonder what urgency we have in proclaiming to all people. It also speaks to the authority that Cornelius had, and we'll see as the story goes on, that he is willing to cast his authority aside for the sake of the cross. as he'll bow before Peter, even though it's a wrong sentiment. Verse 9, the next day they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up onto a household about the sixth hour to pray, noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. More than likely, this is his first meal of the day. Uh, Back then, you didn't have three meals a day. Back then, people actually were hungry. I've experienced very little hunger in my life, like they experienced. But he's hungry, and he's praying, and there's people in the household that are preparing food, and he enters into this trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, 
In it were all the kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. By no means, Lord. I won't do what you asked, Lord. And we might think that that's maybe a poor response, but it actually speaks. I think he was calling him Lord, really, meaning to do what he said, but he must have thought it was like a test. This is a complete change. I mean, you're asking me to think differently about the Old Testament. In Leviticus 11, 45 to 47, what people eat and what people don't eat was an issue of holiness. Beginning in verse 45 in Leviticus, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You should be set apart. You should be live differently than those around you. This is the law about beasts and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. And to this day, there are foods that are kosher and foods that are not kosher, and it's based on the Old Testament law that the Jews followed that Peter had followed his whole life. There are things I cannot eat because I am to be holy because God is holy. Does food make you holy? No, look on in Mark 7, 19, Jesus speaking, beginning in verse 18. And he said to them, then you are also without understanding. Do not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus said it's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what's coming out of your heart is what makes you unclean. So why, did the, why were the food laws there? Why did Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they went into Babylon, why were they so devoutly not eating the foods that were prepared by the Babylonians? What's the issue at hand here? The issue is that God used the food to, to be a, a sign that would set them apart. The same way that he used circumcision as a sign of covenant relationship. Cornelius neither follows the laws of food preparedness or kosher foods, nor is he circumcised. And circumcision... Genesis 17 is the introductory covenant relationship with God. It's the sign of a covenant relationship with God. What's changing here? This is, you're, you're saying that the terms of holiness are now changed and the terms of rightness and being part of the people of God has changed? And with Jesus, all things are changed or fulfilled. The law has been fulfilled. And maybe God in Leviticus picked food as a sign of holiness so that right now he could say, this is changing. When you enter into a Gentile house, eat. 
A Jew wouldn't eat in a Gentile house. And there was no law saying you couldn't eat in a Gentile house. The problem is they didn't know how the food was prepared. How do you remain clean? How do you know? And all of those rules are being taken away at this moment. And for Peter, who says, what do I do with this? His first response is, no, I'm going to stay holy, God, like you taught me my whole life. By no means, Lord. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. This is a man who's never had bacon. And he's trying to figure out what, what do I do now? What do I change? What did this mean? What's, are you basically saying the church can eat what they want? Well, that's a side thing, but that's not the main thing. Clearly, the, our adherence to the law that makes you Jewish has changed. Because the church, the people of God, are now the church, Jewish and Gentile. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Why is this important? This is the sovereignty of God on display. This is God ordaining. And there are sometimes the sovereignty of God is made crystal clear. There is no way this could be ordained any other way. He uses a vision. He uses a trance. He uses timing. Luke is very careful to talk about the timing of this. The timing of this is such that the exact moment when he's coming down from the roof, the people are there waiting for him. He's up there asking God, what does this mean? And God says, go to the gate. There's three guys waiting for you that were yesterday 37 miles away from you. And I have preordained this moment so that in the telling of the story to even to this day, we can know with confidence that the church's doors are opened to all. Who says so? God says so. The one who created the church one who established it as Christ's bride. Verse 21, And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests, and the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Thankfully, he didn't leave right then. 
He goes a little bit slower back to Caesarea. First, he lets them sleep the night there. They've traveled all night. And soldiers do what they're asked to do. So my guess is that if he would have left right away, straight away, but he shows hospitality, he welcomes them in, he feeds them, he gives them a place to sleep, he treats them well. It starts with him inviting Gentiles into his home. And we're tough on Peter sometimes. But honestly, we've got to give him a little credit here for a major world change. Radical life change. Couldn't have seen it coming. And because God's the one who made the change, he went with him. He invited them to be his guests, and the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Jesus must be proclaimed to all people. Jesus must be proclaimed to each household. In verse 24, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, After the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Timing-wise, they travel. They have a travel day, and it's the next day. So they sleep that night, they travel one full day, And then the following day, they enter Caesarea and Cornelius' house. 
Apparently they would have slept on the, ro- on the roadside or somewhere along the way. And expecting them, and he called them together, his relatives and close friends. And this is the first thing I want you to see and, and why I use the illustration to begin the sermon. He brings his relatives and close friends. Now he was a friend of Jewish people. He didn't bring Jewish people to hear what Peter had to say. He brought his family and friends. And I think this is significant because as we look at this command to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, our Jerusalem is where we start. And I know that that command was given to those first witnesses, those first apostles, and we are followers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus, those of us who call Jesus Lord and have been saved by grace, are also sent to be witnesses. It was right for me to go home from that trip in Colorado and tell my family. And that was problematic. In fact, of everybody, it was my siblings who had the hardest time figuring out what to do with me. Their nickname, one of them, became, uh, for me, was Preacher Todd. Why? Because all of a sudden, I was the worst kid, and I'm going to tell them that to follow Jesus and follow more closely? I mean, they were followers of Jesus, but... And I was ignorant of what was happening, and I was a little too talkative about it, and I know I was wrong in the way I presented, but part of it was the fact that this radical change that God made in me, it's hard to preach in Jerusalem. It's hard to talk about our faith among people that have known us for a long time and have seen the flaws in us. It's much easier to go some, it's much easier to be right here in front of you where you all kind of think I'm a good guy. I didn't steal 20 bucks from you and then lie about it. I had to talk about my faith with my brother who I'd stolen the 20 bucks from. And to this day, our friendship has flourished. But in the beginning, he was like, yada, yada, yada. Thief. Right? This guy brings his family together and brings his friends together to hear. And a shift is about to take place as he gathers them together where God starts, stops telling the story from Cornelius' perspective, and he's the most prominent person in the room, more than likely. But he's going to drop Cornelius off and start talking about each individual because everybody matters to God. And fighting for each of them matters to God. Cornelius brings his household together and brings his friends together to hear what, has to say, hears what he has to say And Luke so far has presented Cornelius as a really good guy. But I want you to do what he does when he he does in verse 25, that he tells the story honestly. Cornelius is not Jewish, and Cornelius is not righteous. He's a good guy. He's a better guy than I was at 13 years old. But in verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at at his feet and worshiped him. You don't do that if you're a follower of Yahweh. You don't worship people. That's a Roman thing to do, worshiping people. 
And Paul had to deal with that when he went to Lystra and Derby. They fell at his feet and started to worship and called him Zeus. And Cornelius is not really, really good and really, really savable. Cornelius is a good choice as the first Gentile to join the church. Palatable. A little more palatable for the people that had to call him brother. But wait, there's more Gentiles coming. It's going to get harder. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. Now, this is a fisherman talking to a centurion in an occupied territory and he gives him a direct command. Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And remember, in its best possible terms, without prejudice and without all the negative things that we people do to each other, if you want to look at this as favorable as possible, this is Daniel in Babylon trying to honor God and keep himself separate, not knowing when this would make me unclean before God. But God's going to blow the doors off of that in his church. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. If you're a person that underlines a verse in your Bible, or this is the heart of chapter 10. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And maybe we would follow with an objection, but what about that person? God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Four days earlier, I would not be here saying this, but the sovereignty of God has spoken and the church has changed. People of God are now the gathering of all of God's people and it will be mirrored one day in heaven when we gather before the throne, all nations. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then when you sent for me and Cornelius said, and he tells the story again. The retelling of the story, I'm not going to read. I'm going to go down to verse 34, but I want you to know the significance of the retelling of the story. God doesn't put everything in his scriptures that's said. There are lots of times he skips over and things we'd like to say. We really want more information on that. But at least three times this story is retold to make sure that the church knows this is who you are. You are equals Adopted by God, the gathering of, there isn't, this is the higher class Christians and this is the lower class Christians. These are the elite, these are the common. We are all children of God, saved by grace, forgiven. And whether we were prone to prayer and prone to going to church all our lives, or that doesn't purchase you righteousness. Cornelius and his friends need to be saved. 
Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. This isn't anything new. In Deuteronomy 10, 16 through 18, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. All the way back in Deuteronomy, he's talking about circumcision that has to do with the inside that goes on with your heart. God is still for circumcision, the cutting away of sin. It's just not an outward example that's required anymore. In verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. It has always been God's heart to fight for the nations. It has always been God's heart to fight for those who are outcasts. It was never his plan that the people of God would ostracize the non-people of God in a way that makes them feel like they could never belong. At the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, when the first promise is made to the beginning of the people of God, Abraham, the covenant was, he said, I will make you a blessing to the nations. And ultimately that was answered in Jesus. And this moment, that the nations are welcomed into the people of God. He shows no partiality. In 2 Chronicles 19.7, Now then, let, us fear of the, let the fear of the Lord be upon you, for be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. God does not show partiality. He doesn't like some people more than he likes other people. He is calling people to himself. And may God fill churches with people from all over the world. May God save. But I wanted to look specifically at households in this passage. As he continues to preach, as for the word, verse 36, that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. The name Cornelius has dropped off. He's not preaching to the people. He's preaching to Cornelius' servants. The same way he's preaching to Cornelius. He's now preaching to family of Cornelius. The same way he's preaching to Cornelius. He's preaching to his friends. He's surrounded by Gentiles. First time in his life, probably, he's preaching to Gentiles. And he's talking about no partiality, and he gives the gospel. But notice how it ends. In verse 43, to him all receives 
To, to, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There isn't anything about the piety of Cornelius anymore. There isn't anything about who deserves it and who doesn't deserve it. There is no partiality. There's a simple statement in the gospel that to him, to all the prophets bear witness. That means the Old Testament has been talking about this all along, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the entrance into the church. And it was prophesied about in Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. There's going to be this cataclysmic moment in Jerusalem where everything changes and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the ones the Lord calls will be saved. And this new covenant is going to be greater than the covenants from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If you know the story of Jeremiah, it is in the heart of failure for the Israelite people, and God gives the coolest promise for me in the Old Testament. There is coming a day when my people are going to be so filled with the Holy Spirit that they're going to not going to need somebody else to bring them into a relationship. There will be no need for priests or intercessors. You can come right into the presence of God personally and boldly and talk to Him directly. You will be fully known and you will know fully because the Holy Spirit will dwell in you. What an incredible promise that was brought up, by the way, at Communion. The first communion. This is my blood of the new covenant. I'm purchasing this promise for you. Cornelius brings his household, his friends, and his family together. And maybe I titled this section as you picture this household coming together and people, a guy fighting for his family and them receiving Christ together. Because my father-in-law has, uh, this has become dearer and dearer to him as he gets older. His desire that his family, his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren would follow Jesus. It's like as he gets older, there isn't anything more important. And when we get together, that's what he wants them to know. He wants them to know about what Jesus has done for him. I had a moment with my mother-in-law before she passed away. The day that she passed away, she held my hand and she told me about the faithfulness of Jesus. Why? Because she wanted me to know. In Psalm 145.4, the verse that my father-in-law quotes probably now more than any other when he's with family, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. It is our privilege to tell our family. It is our duty, it is our honor that not one would fall away and be lost. 
All are welcome. And to him who receives him, who believes in him, and gets the forgiveness of sins, he becomes part of the church. Jesus must be proclaimed to all people. Jesus must be proclaimed to each household. And then quickly, our third point, Jesus must be received by each person. In verse 44 through 48, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter's preaching, and they receive Christ and believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And this is different than what we've heard in Acts and these cataclysmic movements. When Philip was preaching in Samaria, we see that apostles came and laid hands, and that's how they received the Holy Spirit. God takes this into his own hands and says, they have the Holy Spirit, they're getting the Holy Spirit. And that's how it happens for us. No one needs to lay hands on you when you believe. You receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment of your salvation. But at this time, there are moments that are so big for the church that the church is interacting with these moments like, okay, that means this changes everything. The Samaritans are the same as us, and we are part of the church together, and it's uniting what was broken apart in 700 B.C., and now the Holy Spirit descends on those who believed, and it sounds like all of them believed, and those who were among the circumcised, so that implies that the, all of them are uncircumcised and they haven't entered into the covenant of Abraham. They're entering into the new covenant in the church. And the uncircumcised have received the Holy Spirit just the same as the circumcised, just as the same who came out of the covenant with Yahweh. And they were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. What's the deal with tongues? Well, my understanding is people speak in tongues still today. I'm not one. I'm, I... I've never, I've asked the Lord, if you want me to speak in tongues, go ahead. I've never experienced it. I don't even aspire to it, really. Paul called it the least of the gifts. But in this moment, in Acts, he's using tongues as a sign, this is God at work here. Pay attention. The tongues, tongues were used in Pentecost when the church began and was sent in Jerusalem. Tongues were used at these major moments as a sign that this is what God is doing, who among God's people is going to say he shouldn't do it? And from this moment on, Peter and Cornelius are equals in standing before the living God and have equal access to God and all of his household. For they're hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Baptism, remember at this time, is a little different than ours. 
or this is a great time to say that if you haven't been baptized, you should. But baptism at this time was risky. Baptism was declaring that you are Christian publicly in a public place, probably in the river or down in the, in the, sea of, in the Mediterranean Sea right by Caesarea. It was a port. They might have gone right down there with those who are shipping. People that were under Cornelius' authority and over his authority, see his whole household traipse out into public and declare their names for Jesus Christ. It's also an entrance into the church. It's a declaration to the church that these are now our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are now our equals. And much of what's written in the New Testament is trying to figure out how to bring unity with that tension. How do we be the church with this new radical change? But as they were baptized, they were baptized as individuals. Each person had to declare their faith for Christ. Each person had to risk it. This is not something that you get in by association. You aren't a Christian because your family's Christian. You're not a Christian because you attend a church that's Christian. You're a Christian because you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you've been saved and you've been baptized and you are awaiting the return of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you're a Christian. It's free, it's easy, but it's individual and it's necessary. And if you haven't received Jesus Christ... If we learned anything from the Jewish people, being Jewish didn't save you. That's clear. Many Jews were not followers of Jesus, and some were. But simply by being associated with God through being Jewish does not make you saved. Never has and never will. And going to church... And being a good guy and being a good guy like Cornelius doesn't change the fact that you have to understand that you have to receive Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Like it says in verse 43. The heart of the gospel. It's essential that each person must receive Jesus. And if you don't, then you're lost in your sin. No matter how good a guy you are or how good of a girl you are. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This story would be told a number of times. And uh, this decision of God's that within the first 11, 12 years of the church that the church would be Jewish, it would include Samaritans. It would not be in Jerusalem anymore, but it would be spread out in these gatherings of ecclesia called the church. That no longer do you need to go to a temple to meet God, but you can meet God anywhere, any place, with anyone. You have access to God. It's, it was mind-blowing. In the first 11 or 12 years of the church, these radical changes where we've seen probably the most radical change of all right now. And I would guess that 98% of us are Gentile here. Maybe north of 90, who knows. Thank God that he loved us too. 
And who would you say he doesn't love? At 14 years old, I had a little bit of a problem. I was trying to proclaim Christ, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was a little bit arrogant. I made the adjustment in minutes, and lots of people around me were a little slower to adjust. But it didn't change the fact that my job was to proclaim Christ. And I had to learn, and I had to grow, and I had to be humbled, and I had to build a new relationship with people, my family, my friends, my school, my church, a relationship in the context of my faith. And I'm still doing that today. But at the heart of it is my great desire that I've got two grandchildren up there somewhere, one at least, maybe she was off to Sunday school, one grandchild up there, I want them to know Jesus. I want them to be saved. And I want the privilege of being able to talk to them. And I want to proclaim Christ. I know that charge has changed. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But I don't think it's changed entirely. I think it's still our job to preach Christ in our home. Figure out how to do it with the mess. Preach Christ in our neighborhood. Preach Christ in our work. Preach Christ at church. Preach Christ when we're sent to another city. Preach Christ wherever God sends us, knowing that every person we come into contact is one that God loves as much as he loves us. It's our job to proclaim Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Forgive us for the poor example we are at times. Forgive us for the people that we walk by that you love. Forgive us for the ways that we've made it more difficult for our family to believe in Jesus. And would your name be lifted high? Would you raise Jesus' name high and bring glory to his name and bring many people into your church? In Jesus' name, amen.